Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, December 1st, 2020. We made it to December. The 12th month is upon us, 2022. I'm John Pahorts, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor, Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media commentary columnist and American Enterprise Institute fellow, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor and author of The Rise of the New Puritans, Noah Rossman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. I, uh, after yesterday, we seemed to sort of run out of topics a little bit at the end of the podcast. And I asked everybody if they had anything to bring to the table and no one really knew what to say. And, uh, Abe has had some thoughts about what is going on with the news that I thought we should have a conversation about. Abe, can you ventilate upon your thoughts? Sure. So it occurred to me that, uh, this is, the first moment in, say, seven years where there is no single dominating, overarching news story for, for the country to focus on. Um, it was Trump when Trump announced and was really running. Uh, that dominated seemingly indefinitely until the pandemic struck. Then it was Trump and the pandemic um, and sort of continued to be all the stories that spun out from both those things, whether that has to, had to do with uh, the, the 2020 election, with January 6th, um, with vaccines, everything. But since, A, um, the genuine um, uh, uh, sort of Biden saying the pandemic is over and the real feeling that the pandemic is over and the midterm elections and, and the pretty significant sidelining of trump um there is no overarching dominating news story and it feels completely disorienting after all this time it feels a bit like a deprivation and i think it's in part because there's been a lot of talk the past maybe 10 years and it's been getting you know increasingly so that uh we don't do a lot as a nation there's not there's not a sort of um a lot of cohesion. There's nothing we all seem to focus on. The culture has become very atomized, uh, in part due to uh, internet technology and 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 uh, all sorts of you know, things related to that. And um, the one thing we sort of had in common was watching the news cycle. Was was sort of we we had we we all focused on the same big story. Uh, on the same battle of the titans, if it was a, a Trump and the anti-Trump, the 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 the, the pandemic and the vaccines, um, and I sort of feel like now we don't even have that. Um, it was a it was a dark unifying force. These things, um, but it it is a I feel like we're in a sort of strange uh, uh, no man's land now. As I think about it, I think about how um, there were uh, all these pseudo events that happened over the course of, you know, that's a term that um, Daniel Borston came up with in his book, The Event. Uh, what was it called? The Image. No. The image. image. I'm sorry, in 1961, the pseudo event, the sort of event staged for media to get media attention by me that it, it didn't have an independent existence. And um, before Trump's emergence on the scene, uh, we had sort of a cascading series of pseudo events and weird side sidelight stories. I mean, Obama had a kind of central 
place because he was a politician who was in like Trump in a different way, a politician who morphed into a cultural figure, whereas Trump was a cult- cultural figure who morphed into a politician. Um, but, you know, I mean, if you go back to 2010, 2011, 2012, you know, there's bizarre kind of weird things that the the fake kid in the balloon. I don't even remember when that was, you know, sort of these things that sort of consume people's attention for two or three days and then and then fade away. Um Trump then comes along and becomes an organizing principle of all news, right? So it's so that's uh, June of 2015. So it's his effect on the Republican Party, his rise. When's he gonna get knocked off? And then all the ancillary stories like Comey, the Hillary, uh, the 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 question of Hillary's emails, then then dovetails into: Is this going to help Trump or hurt Trump? What about r- raising it again when Comey comes out and makes the announcement that he's not? going any further with charges is that about trump or not about trump when he reopens it's about trump and not about trump and then every story from that point onward is oriented in some as you were sort of saying in some sense around trump black lives matter uh um the protest the george floyd protest almost anything that you can think of the hurricane when he drew the map you know with the pen uh, I I don't know what it was all him or some relation to him. And maybe this is the biggest sign that he is moving away from a uh, central place in our culture that you can't organize a story around him unless it's directly about him. Right. Nick Fuentes has dinner at Mar-a-Lago with Kanye and Trump, but that's about Trump and who Trump is associating with. It's not, there's something larger going on in the country and it's a reaction to Trump or it's a reflection of Trump. It's a reflection of the politics that Trump, you know, inaugurated. Now you could say that this conversation shows that he hasn't left the center of the scene, but he kind of has. I mean, yeah, I, 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 yeah. This is this is an important point because I think what you have seen the media do, and and this is in service to to a feeding a pretty deeply human impulse, which is we like to try to understand the world by telling ourselves and listening to others' stories. So it's always good to have a hero and a villain. And the Manichaean setup for politicians, I think that that Trump kind of solidified was was financially a windfall for the for the uh, news media, and they're looking to replace that, understandably, uh, although perniciously for democracy. So. Uh, DeSantis, they've tried to sort of bring Trump back by by creating this rivalry that that thus far doesn't really exist out in the open. I mean, obviously, if both of them are going to throw their hats in the ring for 2024, they will be political rivals. But DeSantis isn't playing. And so we see, you know, we're seeing these stories like this Mark Leibovich story that just came out in The Atlantic about DeSantis, which is trying to paint DeSantis. He calls him feral, you know, and, and it goes through and obviously nobody around DeSantis is going to talk to this guy. So he's like, I, I imagine him kind of hanging out in Dunedin, Florida, where my sister now lives, but is where Ron DeSantis grew up and his family still resides, um, you know, trying to get people to, to dig up dirt on DeSantis. And the worst you can get is like former GOP never Trumpers saying, yeah, he was a little standoffish. He didn't like to make eye contact. But, you know, he's quoting Rick Wilson in this piece. So this guy has really got no sources anywhere near the DeSantis campaign, which I think is hilarious. But they're trying to drum up this energy again. Like, we need a villain. We need someone in the role of the bad force that's going to destroy democracy, against which we, the media, can bring in the light. And I think that's failing in part because, as you say, John, people are tired of the Trump thing. And they're also not necessarily looking for that story to repeat in the next uh, presidential election cycle, I hope. 
evidence for that that I saw is is the degree to which people are just substituting Elon Musk for Donald Trump uh, in ways that are that don't really work. I saw David Axelrod the other day tweet something out. It was just a, a Washington Post story on Elon Musk and his uh, opacity and what he's doing over at Twitter and said, you know, authoritarians hate the sunlight or something along those lines and paraphrasing. And it just doesn't make any sense unless you take out the word Elon and substitute Trump because he's the guy's the head of a publicly traded company. I mean, it's it, and some people came out of the woodwork, pushed the bridge of their glasses up and say, actually, the dictionary definition of authoritarian suggests that that kind of works. No, I think you actually mean tyrant. Either way, whether we, we can get into all the pedantry you want, and I'm happy to do that. That's a fun pastime. But it's just logically it makes no sense unless you're trying to create a Trump, a Trump substitute and sort of a pale Trump, Trump, Trump substitute that doesn't really represent the existential danger you worked yourselves up into over the last you know four or five years. So it's just failing kind of flat. It's you know, it's, it's just unsatisfying. So well, everybody's, that's like, 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 to, to Abe's point, everybody's just unsatisfied by the villains that we have right now. Well, Trump because, is like pure grade alcohol and, you know, what the Elon Musk is like Zima. I mean, they're just not <laughs> comparable. Well, no one's going to get out into the streets and protest Musk. I mean, you know, uh, and, and so there's this sort of desperate hunger for something to get people to pull their hair out over and say, oh, my God, this is the end of everything. That was the Trump story. That was that was the pandemic story, too. I think that I think the, the pandemic came in and play, played a role in this, too. And it's and its absence um, is, is being felt. And there's also the fact that we have a president who's just there. You could say a lot of things about him. You could. There's a lot to just talk about his 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 uh, particular uh, um, abilities or or lack thereof. Um, if he's, you know, as with any any, any national leader, is he is he? doing good things he's doing bad things he's being silly he's fine that's what but he does not have the ability to dominate um uh, a news cycle well the way and, past presidents have but this is what also drives me mad though is that the same people trying to find a new villain are also not doing their basic day-to-day -day job holding this administration accountable so the press secretary for the biden administration constantly bald-faced lies to the press who's gathered around her. There's no follow-up. There's no story saying, well, actually, we looked into this statement. It turns out it's completely false. I mean, just the other day, she claimed that Joe Biden has been down to visit the border. No, he has not. There's right. a crisis. It's been a crisis. I mean, they, she just lies. She smiles. And then she moves on and no one holds them accountable. And that's that's the frustrating thing for me in their search for a narrative. They're actually missing the stories that are right in front of their faces. But I, I want to briefly just highlight Abe's point that I think is really profound is that there is, there's something in, that's human, profoundly human there's something in the soul that craves eschatology and when you don't get it you you search for it you need something to to animate you to justify this existence something grander and something more urgent and acute than just day-to-day -day, you know main, holding the president accountable isn't something that's going to you know give you purpose in life well it's like a sure, look. apocalypse addiction you know Liberal journalists don't hold liberal administrations accountable. So that it's not, you know, it, it, this is not anything new, you know, I mean, Obama I can still spent, be annoyed by it. I'm just going to can. But I mean, Obama <laughs> spent eight years not being held accountable. And then everybody was surprised that the Democratic Party cratered under his watch because there was no coverage of what was going on that would lead to the cratering. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, time and time again, like that, that was, that was a, that was a feature. Um, and, uh, sometimes that's really bad for 
democratic administrations because um, they don't have a feel. The media are not only running interference for them, but are blinding them to political realities that they might want to deal with or take, you know, take account of. Um, I think that this may well be true. Uh, Noah was talking about it a little bit this earlier this week with the push on gun control. Uh, you know, it's like, why, why I understand if it's like a deeply held conviction that you have to do this because the world d- d- relies upon it. But I mean, it's been 30 years of Democrats getting their hats handed to them every time they bring up gun control you know the Amer- you know not only is the judiciary turning you know moving against them uh, with this more expansive interpretation of the second amendment's uh place as a gun rights document or d- gun rights paragraph or whatever you want to call it but the public the people who care about guns want guns the people who say they don't want guns don't vote on guns well, and they don't hold their own. I'm sorry, if you want a safer, uh, we do have an extraordinarily high number of deaths from guns, m- most suicide, actually a really high suicide yep. number, which tragic, um, but also homicide. If these same voters and these same Democrats aren't holding accountable the people who are charged with enforcing the laws we already have on the books, do you know how many felons walk around carrying guns who aren't supposed mm-hmm. to have them? Many in my city, many in uh, many cities enforce the laws that are on the books because all these shootings that are held up as evidence of why we have too many guns in almost every case there has been a lack of enforcement of existing rules and existing law and that's actually the thing that i think a a smart democrat would say we have a second amendment we're not going to confiscate people's guns that's not what we do in this country but we are going to enforce the laws that people have decided are necessary to protect you know lives and here's how we'll do that like that's an honest approach to gun some forms of gun control and certain weapons that really should only be in the hands of the military and law enforcement people will will come on board with that they're not going to come on board with beto saying we're Beto O'Rourke saying we're going to take your guns. I mean, it's ridiculous. But to go back, I think to 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 the A point, you know, the insight that led to Joe Biden's successful presidential campaign, ultimately winning in the Democratic Party and then winning the election, uh, and maybe in some sense winning the midterms. Uh, I mean, they didn't really win the midterms, but you know, you know what I mean. Was that this organizing, the fact that the that the country and the news cycle and everything had come to revolve around Trump was something you could respond to by saying, you know what, I'm going to bring you into a world in which the world is not going to revolve around me. world doesn't revolve around me. I'm not looking to get news stories every day about myself. I put a lid on things at noon. I go to Delaware every weekend. I don't want to be the center of America's attention. And that is something Republicans who got addicted to the world in which, you know, every move that was made by their hero was the dominating event of the day. um, Failed to see that everybody who wasn't they wanted out of this they were sick of it it was nausea it was like being on a it was like being on splash mountain you know or the big thunder mountain railroad without ever being able to get off and the country wanted to get off and it now has had three elections in which it said get me off this ride i'm sick of this goddamn ride 
Um, and and in that sense, Biden has been very disciplined, and the administration has been very. Di- now, maybe they're making, they're, you know, they're making a virtue out of necessity. It would be bad for him to be really paid more attention to because then all of the deficiencies and problems would really move to center stage. Nonetheless, the proof of the pudding is in the eating here. You know, he has he has changed and lowered the American political temperature. I think we're giving a little bit too much credit to the Biden administration. There's symbiosis between the Biden administration and the and the Trump regime that they're trying to reanimate. I mean, they've been trying to summon the ghost of Donald Trump back into our into our consciousness for the better part of the last 12 months. Ultra mega, ultra mega. Yeah. I mean, how many speeches did we, you know, conjuring the ghost of Trump in a seance? Uh, this is something that they 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 don't want anybody off this ride either. Well, but they do. In other words, they want people to be reminded of the ride. They don't want people to get inured to the fact that that was something that happened a couple of years ago. They're like, you could have to, you could. They may make you get back on the ride. You know, you may have to get back. They may force you back into this. You're going to be on the line and then you're going to be in the ride and you're not going to get off for another four years if you're not careful. That's a that's a different pitch. And so Abe is saying that this is disorient, disorienting for us because we're here five days a week trying to come up with things to talk to you about. But I'm not sure that it isn't. You know, it's obviously a net positive to the country that we don't have this lunatic driving in our brains every minute and the people whose brains he remains in both republicans who are you know who are addicted to him and resistance people who are addicted to him are not well this is not a healthy way to live unless you're making a lot of money off it unless you know this is your grift but if it's not your grift it's really sick this is not American life is not supposed to be centered on politics. Which, in, in response to Noah's point, um, the the threat to democracy apocalypse story, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that was also that was a fundamentally a Trump story, um, right? And anyone who's anyone who's associated with Trump represented the threat to democracy. Well, for the Democrats, for the Biden administration, that was an electoral strategy idea, and it's done. Uh, there's not, there's after what happened in the midterms, they, I don't think they can, uh, resuscitate the, uh, threat to democracy angle like that again. Right. I mean, so that, 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 that's another, that's another sort of dead apocalyptic narrative. The Washington Post is going to have to change its slogan to like democracy dies with Donald for the next election to kind of up the, yeah, no, but the apocalypticism is. Tired, but it, wor- but it worked, right? It worked, it worked. once, yeah. It, it did work. Okay, well, you know, but once it works, it's done. Everything is so you have to morph into something else. So, what do they have going for them? This election, Trump wasn't on the ballot, so his the threat to democracy that he introduced is on the ballot. Next, going forward, Trump is on the ballot. I mean, he's not on the national ballot until he wins the Republican nomination, but he played right into their hands again. He declares three seconds after the midterms are over when, you know, he should have, you know. I'm reminded were, briefly yeah, go ahead. of a piece that Christine wrote in January of 2020, <laughs> which we titled Apocalypse Fatigue. Christine, do you remember writing this? 
I do. And it was it was funny because it was it was the same sort of idea, like how many, you know, uh, meteors are going to crash before we realize that that we're all running around like chicken little. <laughs> Any eschatological log uh, logic and, and language that they bring to the table, climate change, affordable housing, eating meat, the number of insects, rise of robots. And um, you have this quote from Hillary Clinton, who always reads the stage directions. She's so maladroit. Uh, I'm the last <laughs> thing standing between you and the apocalypse. <laughs> she literally she said it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's God, there's something to it. There's this is they need a steady diet of uh, of world ending drama. Um, well, no, this this is a this is a good segue then into uh, I mean, they they need a never a never ending diet, but it's provided to them. It's not like they're summoning it out of Hulk. Now, some of this they summon the, a lot of the climate change stuff that they they they. And then they get all scared by it. They propose it and then they're all scared by it and ruin their lives by it. But um, who wants apocalypse aside from them is Carrie Lake is, you know, uh, the election deniers who are going on with their elections. I don't even know what Carrie Lake's purpose is here. What's her purpose? She has literally no path. You know, at least when you win the pre when you win the presidency in November and the, you're sworn in in January in the, in the national, there are steps that have to be taken for the person who wins on election night to be made president. Right? There's there's the beating of the electoral college. There's the summoning of the electoral this, and then you have the author. Then you have the acceptance of the electoral ballots. Carrie Lake lost the election. She, okay, but there you're, is you're, no process by which. Yeah, okay. You're you're looking at this from the wrong angle, though. Carrie Lake is is just the other side of a coin that that people like Stacey Abrams worked too. They are not in it to get into government and be people who who use power judiciously and help their constituents. They are in it as a platform for public visibility, national visibility. And when they get that, they turn around and can form a, you know, in Stacey Abrams case, a so-called nonprofit that does nothing but spend other people's money with no accountability and, and actually no charitable uh, impact whatsoever on the communities they took the money from. So I think that that like that platform, I mean, Yuval Levin talks about this a lot in his book. Like there are lots of people who do win their elections with the idea that, you know, being a congresswoman is actually just a starting off point for being a larger media or national personality and carrie lake is just that sort of person trump is kind of that sort of person he would if he had not won it still would have been good for him to have been such a bombastic candidate and saying all the crazy things he did it helps stacey abrams she's very wealthy now as a result of her political work so there i do think a lot of these people don't have a goal in mind that we would assume they would by running for office and so they're happy to stay in the limelight making these crazy election denying claims because it redounds to their benefit Absolutely. But I want to go back to the point here, that which is that um, Republicans serve Democrats and themselves and everybody else an apocalyptic diet. And they, they are they are not going to stop. Uh, there are too many of them. Uh, it's too it's too easy. Um, and there is there is too much milling. It's sort of like a, a digging around in 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 these fields by you know liberals and disinformation reporters and whatever for any of this to remain in the you know in sort of like in the shadows or in the reddits or something like that crazy arguments this and that whatever charlie kirk whatever bloviating idiocy charlie kirk has to toss around or all of that like nothing nothing is invisible no 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 maga trump 
world theory about Biden, the Democrats, this, that is ever going to remain back in the, you know, proletarian media without being highlighted. So this diet is going to be fed and it then gets to something that Noah wanted to talk about, which is this conversation going on between uh, our friend Nick Catoggio at the at the dispatch, who was all pundit for t- 20 years, uh, you know, maybe the best blogger of the blogging era and uh, and and our friend Michael Brendan Doherty at National Review. So, Noah, do you want to sort of explain what's going on there? Yeah. Um, so I'm not going to summarize this piece because it's quite involved and you should go read it. And frankly, if you listen to this podcast on a regular basis, you, you're familiar with the outlines of the arguments. But <clears throat> my former hot air colleague, uh, Ala Pundit, the artist formerly known as Ala Pundit, Katagio, wrote this piece in the dispatch, Aren't You Embarrassed? And uh, cites a litany jumping off the news hook being the Nick Fuentes dinner with Donald Trump and Kanye West at Mar-a-Lago. And that's the hook, and then proceeds to go into the details about why you should be humiliated by a party um, that <clears throat> steps on rakes at every available opportunity, uh, fails at, at its prime directive, getting people elected to office, um, and seems disinterested in that prime directive, more uh, more interested in making a spectacle of itself and shouting, look at me. Um, and in response to this piece... In National Review, our friend Michael Brendan Doherty writes uh, at National Review, being a conservative or Republican has always been cringy. And um, he and I matured around the same time. Our political maturation took place in the 1990s. And he reminds me, not even going to the 90s, but he reminds me of a lot of uh, episodes on the right that occurred over the last 20 years or so that I forgot I was embarrassed by. Um, you know, the the Clint Eastwood chair thing, uh, the the congressional page sex scandal, uh, all, all the, the humiliating a spectacle that CPAC made of itself. And Denny Hastert and the, the spectacle that CPAC made of itself and all the, the scam packs that orbited around the Tea Party movement, all this stuff. And he goes on to say, um, you know, this is this is something that, uh, you know, the right has never been been cool, per se. And because if you prefer their policy, pref- you prefer policy preferences, it's something you make your peace with uh, early on. And even, you know, has some nice things to say about the current iteration of the GOP. Like, for example, Fox News, say what you will about Fox News primetime, but at least Tucker Carlson reads books, stuff like that. It's a valid argument. It's one that it deserves, I think, to be ruminated on. Um, because, again, if you grew up in the 90s that I did, as I did, you did find a Republican brand and conservatism broadly um, to be cringy for le- mostly the same reasons, honestly, that you find them cringy today if you're in the game of power politics, because they sacrifice power, they sacrifice um, wins, gettable wins, uh, for really parochial goals, um, just and make spectacles of themselves. That was absolutely true uh, in the early years of my political maturity. And, you know, I wrote a piece last year, actually, that's, you know, all things evolve pretty rapidly because you know all the things that made Republicans stodgy and uncool in the 90s were these moral precepts that the progressive left has subsequently adopted for themselves. So times really do change. Um, but conservatism is naturally counter-revolutionary. Um, it's never going to elicit the same passions as radicalism. And passion is the province of youth. Youth and youth are the tastemakers. So Republicans, conservatives are always going to be behind the eight ball in that respect. It's the... But it's there's the... A, 
But briefly, just to yeah. finish the point, there's a difference between being hip and cool and being good at your job. Um, it's the difference between being defensible and not. And um, uh, Michael's mounting this defense uh, to which I'm inclined, you know, the ideological convictions um, of your your particular ideological predilections, your convictions, your policy preferences should matter more to you. And so you should be able to compartmentalize the cringy stuff, as most of us, I think, do. Um, but as party registration numbers suggests, fewer and fewer people are able to make that trade off today. And that's an obstacle to performing on all levels at a, at a to a degree that it was not in the Obama years, that it was not in the Bush years. Uh, it's now a practical imperative, if not an existential imperative, okay. to improve this standing. And it has nothing to do with being cool or hip, but it has a lot to do with being defensible. But the, so but there's I, I agree with a lot of what you're saying. And this this uh, I came of age in the 80s, um, not the 90s. But I remember being like figuring out how conservative I was going to be in the 90s when I was college and graduate student. Um, and I, there was this we used to a couple of friends that I used to joke that the Republicans had what we called a Walker, Texas Ranger problem. And that was that their biggest celebrity was Chuck Norris still. And Chuck Norris was like the star of the show that my great aunt loved and like she had a huge crush on Chuck Norris as Walker, Texas Ranger. And that was a problem if you were under the age of 30, right? Because you look at that and you're like, Egh. but there's there was a sort of a craving among a lot of conservatives to have some celebrity, to have that kind of impact, particularly on youth voters, and they could never quite muster it. Trump actually fills that void. He is a his celebrity in his own right. And he learned by watching how Obama became a kind of celebrity to the Democrats too. But the Democrats also have Hollywood. So like they're they're lousy with celebrities. And um, and actually to be a conservative is to try to resist that impulse, right? To be like if you're in government, your job isn't to be famous and to be a celebrity. It's it's as Noah says, to do a job, to get elected, to do a job. And and conservatives have lost that to some extent. They've fallen for this kind of celebrity because that's appealing. And unfortunately for younger voters, um, if you're, unless you're a hardcore Trump supporter under the age of 30, of which there are some, but not a ton, that's a void that still exists for for conservatism. And I I would argue we don't need to fill it because it's, there's a danger right. there. But it's going to be hard not to, not to give this podcast over entirely to the dispatch. But Jonah wrote a piece the other day that was pretty insightful about the Republican Party's infatuation with celebrities and, and pretty mm. girls. And it's all and, and chalks it all up to envy um, okay, just but, as uh, just as a, okay. a, you know, a human foible, uh, which there's I think some of that there's I think some of there's that. I think there's something else going on aside from celebrity. So uh, I came of political age in the 70s. So we got the 70s, we got the 80s, we got the mm. 90s. OK, so. The story in America in the late 1970s, early 1980s, was that liberalism and progressivism had run out of steam. Um, the 60s and the 70s had been decades in which all kinds of liberal desiderata became became the policy uh, of the land uh, and was essentially things were tried, you know, effort to solve poverty, uh, creation of a cradle-to-grave welfare system, uh, liberalization of crime responses, uh, foreign policy that started to sort of lean really heavily into arms control, all of this. A lot of it was tried, and it failed, and it wasn't supposed to fail, and the people who had proposed it didn't expect it to fail, because it had never been tried before and they thought it would work. And then they didn't have any responses when the failure 
was self-evident. And so the, the this gigantic opportunity manifested itself in the non-liberal world. Not only was the critique, which is where neoconservatism essentially arose, the critique of liberal policy solutions, not only was it powerful because it every day we were living through evidence with our own ears, eyes, and senses that 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 these liberal policy solutions were failures. Uh, but uh, it was then possible to start trying to figure out why they were failures. What was it in the doctrine that screwed up? What was it that made it impossible to follow, you know, to, to, to work? Um, so in the 80s, when Reagan came along and all of that, the intellectual ferment in the United States was on the right for the most part energy, enthusiasm, policy prescriptions that were then tried that then seemed to work. I mean, even though people now claim that they didn't and claimed at the time they didn't, supply-side economics, peace through strength, the Strategic Defense Initiative, which knocked the Soviet Union out of existence, um, all kinds of things, deregulation, uh, firing the air traffic control, all, all kinds of things that were going on. And so you had this track, which was, Success, policy, ideology, and an understanding that you know what what liberals and progressives had wanted to do was coming smack dab against human nature and the way things actually work in the world. That you couldn't just incept progressive change. That that the that reality was going to come crashing into reality. And and so that was a real thing. And so culturally, we only had Lee Greenwood, and there was not there was all of that. But it didn't matter very much. It really didn't matter. And then you know uh, things started to get more vulgar. And you had then uh, with the Gingrich Revolution, you had this uh, effort to expand out this policy prescription thing. That then also ran head headlong into, uh, hey, let's close the government down. You know, you know, it'd be great. We should close the government down. Nobody likes the government. Then Democrats are the ones who are going to be held responsible for. You know, people are going to see they can live without the government. That was 1995. By the way, we're about to go through that again. I think this year we've now had three or four different occasions in which Republicans forget the lessons of 1995, which effectively got Bill Clinton reelected. And we'll, we're going to do the, the same things again. And then George W. Bush revived the Republican Party's fortunes when the impeachment of Bill Clinton went so awry, or the sort of the Monica Gates stuff went so awry, by putting himself in, uh, by setting himself against this raging Republican effort to sort of like over-interpret the Gingrich Revolution and all of that and say, you know what? We're conservatives, but we're compassionate. I didn't like it. I, I hated that soundbite, but it was real and it worked. And it worked because Republicans looked like jerks. They looked like heartless, thoughtless jerks. And he said, I have heart. I, I have a charge to keep. You know, I want to help the waitress mom you know who didn't graduate from high school i'm gonna help with your schooling i'm gonna make sure that schools work better so that your kids have a better shot all of that stuff was very real and then bush 
became a cropper in the second term of his presidency. And the jerk element of the Republican Party started to reassert itself. It's like, you see, he's the jerk. We're not the jerks. He's the jerk. And that sort of Trump comes in, Trump, even, you know, six years before he ends up becoming president, like starts with the birth certificate stuff. And you had this like high end thing, right, which was we're the Tea Party. We believe in the Constitution. We believe in the Tenth Amendment government. You know, Democrats, liberals are going too far. We want to reassert constitutional prerogatives. And that was the high thing. And then the low thing was he's a Muslim who was, you know, in 1961, people had this incredible plot to make sure that people thought he was born in Hawaii so that 47 years later, a half black guy named Barack Hussein Obama could somehow become president. This plot was all hatched. When you put it like that, it sounds crazy. But I think uh, if we're, if we're going to talk about the yeah. sort of lame to cool political spectrum here, yeah. there's a, there's a figure we should bring into the discussion, um, which is Andrew Breitbart. Uh, I remember uh, Breitbart saying ages ago, this was in the early two thousands. It's like when I first, you know, came to Washington and started to, uh, not uh, moved to Washington, but when he sort of got involved in politics and sort of came to know conservatives and young conservatives, he's like, you know, everyone was talking about Reagan, Reagan, Reagan. He said, and they dressed like Reagan. But this was this was in the 21st century. This was, you know, they didn't they didn't look like their liberal counterparts uh, uh, did on on the Hill and 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 in, in media and so, and so on. And he very consciously sought to sort of change uh, the the image uh, of of conservative culture in the country. He was he he sort of figured there's no reason why it couldn't be cool. Um, I have to say, and I, I loved Breitbart, and uh, but they in you mean part, Andrew himself. It, it, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah he Andrew was a himself. close Sorry, friend yes. of of Abe's and mine. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't. I don't, I don't died. Remember. I think it was a twenty ten. 12 or something or 43 yeah yeah so um but in part under, under his under his sort of guidance but and and beyond in this effort this very conscious effort i think the right sort of skipped cool they went from sort of two buttoned up skipped cool and went to unhinged um in this in this eager so es- unhinged es- is effort. on the far end of cool in a way, yeah, yes, yeah, so because cool it's, it's, it's just insane. Yeah, sure. Well, well, because be. if not cool is sort of you know buttoned up, and then if you let it hang out too much, you're 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 unhinged. Yeah, you know, I mean, Kanye was cool, right? There you go. Now look at him. Yeah. Um, but I I, I think just to sort of close the circle on on this on this point. Being conservative wasn't always cringe inducing. You guys are you guys are wrong. Like it's not it was oh, no, no, that's actually a point I wanted to make okay, is that I yeah. didn't feel even remotely uh unable to defend the conservative Republican position in right. the aughts in right. the early to the twenty tens for most of the twenty tens. Right. Okay, but the fifteen year period. Okay, but here's the thing. So Trump comes in, Trump wins, and what, what happens is interesting is that a certain segment of the intellectual class of the right has a Heideggerian moment. I don't mean to be pretentious about this, but like falls in love with the idea that they were just, everything that they believed in was actually desiccated intellection, you know, and didn't 
didn't speak to the deepest passions and thoughts of the American soul and Volk, and that Trump was a man. Trump had a had juice, and Trump had American greatness in his soul. And everything, they sat around listening to operas and writing about modern art and all of that, and everything that they did was basically just wimpy, you know, uh, simpering, and, you know, this was real. He was a man. He was a man, you know. And that's that was part of the weirdness of the. In other words, like people, everybody loves a winner. So Trump wins this incredibly unexpected election, and then all these people go absolutely bananas, psychotic, betraying everything that they had ever believed because they thought they now saw a new pathway. That you know the people that they didn't like in their world, in the arts world, in the performing, all of that, you know that that he knew the secret, which is that they had to be destroyed. They were trying to destroy us. He would destroy them. They were going to be part of the destruction. But guess who got destroyed? Yeah, he won in 2016. Guess who got destroyed? He got destroyed. The Republican Party got destroyed. I mean, the, let's say the electoral Republican Party got kind of destroyed. Republican Party was at its high water mark in 2016. No one I wrote about this in, at the end of 2016. Obama had decimated the Democratic Party. It had lost, it, it, you know, uh, Republicans at the end of 2016 had 66 out of 99 state legislatures. He presided over the decimation. We shouldn't yeah. rob the Republican Party of agency here. They, right. No, no, I agree. I agree. That. I agree. And then Trump turned around and, you know, and and screwed the pooch in three successive elections. And now the question is, People like that who aren't, you know, don't like have any electoral force, but they speak to some idea. It's like Trump is cool where I'm concerned. Trump is cool because he's a mixed martial arts fighter in politics, you know, like that, whatever, you know, he I I now enjoy this is like I get to go and see gladiatorial combat, show some blood. You know, are they going to now look at this and say, hey, you know what? It didn't work because that's. What happened here is it didn't work. Trump came along, he made a pitch, he, you know, he 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 walked that narrow corridor in the Rust Belt Midwest to win the election, and it didn't work. He failed. It was a huge failure. So, yeah, the same people who are sitting there, you know, listening to Schumann and reading, you know, Goethe while they sip some Chablis on their boat in Long Island Sound now believe that the elections are all stolen because that's the only place that they can go without saying, oh my God, I guess this wasn't right. We didn't get this right. You know, and the Republican Party basically was in a position where Trump pulls off this unbelievable, you know, uh, stunt election victory and they're like, I know something we don't know, I guess. We better, like, run this string out, you know, see where it goes, because he knows something. And then it turned out he knew shit. It was a, it was a, you know, it was a lucky break. He got a bunch of lucky breaks. 
you know, and the minute that he then had to go back to the American people, go back to the well uh, and get their attention again. And now Republicans are stuck. You know, briefly, we we talked about this at the beginning of the week, I think, and I've, I've had time to think about it. About this gun control thing, this gun control push, like as a positioning statement, it makes very little sense as an effort to uh, divide this very narrow Republican majority. It makes no sense. It will induce uh, more solidarity and unity in the Republican conference than anything else. So and I'm trying to think of how they could test this proposition. The way to test the proposition of the Republican Party's current iteration is to ask it to put its the taxpayers money where their mouths are supposedly the Republican Party is far more friendly these days to populist policy prescriptions. Let's make them vote on a universal basic income. Let's make them vote on climate regulation and regulating industry to to advance climate objectives. Let's make them vote on, um, you know, half a dozen other uh, progressive policy prescriptions. This is the sort of thing that they talk a good game about. So let's see if they're really invested in it. Medicare expansion, a public option in health insurance. Polls suggest Republicans are friendlier to this sort of thing now in their new populist age. Let's make them vote on it. And I bet you the outcome of those votes isn't going to be what the Heideggerians on the right think it should be. I, I just think it's a we're just this is a very interesting moment. Like, again, if if part of conservatism is a is a. um rueful recognition of reality you can't look at the results from 2017 to 20 to now the end of 2022 except with this demented loathsome conspiracy theory that you know venezuelan communists are you know taking my pillow and putting it and you know choking the life out of people by stuffing it over the heads of poor maga people who just wanted trump to be reelected. um you know that's the only recourse you have to looking at the election results of 2018, 2020, and 2022 and saying, you know, this was like Mark Fidrich. People, anybody remember what you guys are too young to remember Mark Fidrich? Mark Fidrich was a pitcher with the Detroit Tigers and he came out of nowhere and he had this astounding first half of his first season, which I think was 1976. He was unhittable. He was, and he had this crazy stance and he did, he, he, he talked to himself on the mound. He walked around. He was called the stork or the bird or something like that. He looked weird when he pitched and he went 14 and three until the all-star break and nobody knew what to do about him. It was like, this was some new model of American pitching. And then people came back from the all-star break and he was never the same. And then I think he lost 15 games and he had another couple seasons and then he went out because they figured it out. He only had two pitches. And the other teams had never seen his antics and stuff like that. But then they 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 spent time, they watched him, they they figured out his tells, they knew how to read him, and then everybody could hit him. And that was the end of Mark Fidrich. So you're either coming into the league and you're the greatest you're, you're you're the greatest pitcher who's ever lived, you know, you're Jacob deGrom or something and you're unhittable and that was what MAGA people and it, regular Republicans thought maybe Trump was or you're Mark Fidrich, which is you come in and you're dazzling or un, you know or unshakable or whatever in the first as people are introduced to you. And then they get your number and then you're dead meat. And that's Trump. Trump is dead meat. And if the Republican Party continues to, you know, if the Republican Party doesn't grasp this, whether you're whether you're, you know, effete intellectual Heidegger, neo Heideggers 
or you're just, you know, I don't know, somebody who thought Trump was really great and, you know, you really enjoyed his antics. But you know what? If we keep going this way, Stacey Abrams could be president. If, you know, um, then, then, you know, I don't know. But I mean, I think this is an interesting fight. Is it? Emba- I mean, Trump is now an emba- Trump is an embarrassment in the same way. This is what Katojo was saying. Like Trump is an embarrassment in the in, but he's a different kind of embarrassment because while the Republicans were cringe-inducingly embarrassing, they were also moving from being a minority party in the United States, where they had where twenty-two percent of people identified as Republicans and forty-four percent identified as Democrats in nineteen eighty, to being at parity. So they were so embarrassing that the entire nature of the American political dynamic shifted over the course of those two decades. You, you should you should only have such cultural embarrassment. You should only be so culturally embarrassed. You know, um, that's that's a that was a that's the most important political uh, you know development since the New Deal that the Democrats and the Republicans are effectively at, at they're not quite at parity. Democrats are still a larger party, but. You know, but but that's 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 where we are. Um, we should take a break here. So we're going to take a break. Do you know only one in three Americans believes we can fully exercise our free speech rights? That's why FIRE is stepping up to protect freedom of expression for all Americans, no matter where you're from or what you believe. The Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, or FIRE, knows free speech makes free people. FIRE will always be a principled, nonpartisan, nonprofit defender of your rights. Join the fight for free speech at www.thefire.org. Christine, do we want to go back to this Mark Leibovich piece about uh, Ron DeSantis in the Atlantic? Because uh, you mentioned that, you know, the three sources quoted saying, when people get a load of Ron DeSantis, they're not going to like him because they're not going to want to have a beer with him. He doesn't like to make eye contact. He's a weirdo. Are Rick Wilson, somebody else who left the party in 2016, Car- mm-hmm. Carlos Corbello, who was a Republican congressman uh, in, uh, in in South Florida, who lost uh, in 2018 or something. And then, I don't know, Barbara Comstock said he doesn't make eye contact. She's effectively also like a right. never Trumper. So a friend of mine. So I don't want to. But I mean, I believe that. DeSantis is an awkward person and, you know, maybe not the most sociable or, you know, easy to get along with or whatever. I, I, I understand. Yeah, but uh, coming after, I mean, th- th- I actually see that as sort of a, a strength of his actually, when you're, when you're thinking about who he might be up against if he, if he decides to run, um, you know, he doesn't need that. I mean, there was something, Bill Clinton used this to great effect because he was good at it, but he needed the crowd's approval and he needed to be among people who worshiped him and were Obama needed a bit too. you know, there, there's no one who gets to that level of politics who, who isn't a bit of a narcissist. Trump just had it all out in the open, obviously. And, and he constantly needed that feeding. He still needs that feeding. So someone who's a little awkward and just, you know, gets behind the podium and says like, this is the job. This is what I'm doing. Here's what I believe. Here's what I've done. Here's what you, I promise you I will do. It's actually refreshing to me. Now, it might not be to every voter, but if you talk to people, and, and I talk to a lot of them because they're my family and friends who still live in Florida, um, and as I said, my sister lives in the city where where uh, DeSantis grew up, um, they, they don't they don't like him for, for his charisma. 
they like him for what he's done for their state. They like the style of governance and they like when he picks a fight because he seems to choose picking those fights wisely, according to these voters. And and he's willing to get in there and, and get a little belligerent when he needs to. Now, whether that translates to a national stage, maybe not. There are lots of governors who think they should be president and who don't have what it takes to make it in, in the big leagues. But I just found it interesting that, you know, a, a very... Uh, uh, prestigious national reporter like Leibovich can't he doesn't have any sources like these are not really close sources and this piece doesn't really give us anything but a lot of snark a lot of speculation it just seemed juvenile and I was disappointed in him <laughs> I actually like some of the stuff he's written he wrote an interesting book he has it I don't agree with him politically on some of his takes but he's a good you know he's a good writer I found this really kind of depressing because I'm like this is this is all you got like you shouldn't have published this piece and I thought it, he didn't hit the mark. I didn't, he didn't, there was nothing, he didn't capture DeSantis in any way for me. Exactly. That, that, that sort of made me think. Uh, part of it, so at one point he describes him as uh, feral. <laughs> and in another point he describes him as robotic, um, which is, <laughs> which I actually, Where are it, the it, editors? Made, uh, it, it, it makes, makes me think <laughs> of those, the, the Boston Dynamic it's, Robots. It's, that, it's those, the police dogs yeah, we were talking yeah, the about. Feral, yeah, the feral robot. <laughs> yeah. um, well, listen, the primary observation that he brings to the table is that he's he's a sort of phlegmatic personality, which is something we've been saying for a long time. It's not a new observation. It's It's been in the ether for a while to the degree that we've been talking about it for weeks. So, I mean, you, you can only put flair and spin on it to make it new and and interesting. Okay, can I read this paragraph? Because this is the paragraph that gives the game away, okay? No shortage of alleged heavyweights have entered previous primary races only to reveal themselves as decidedly not ready for primetime or even late night C-SPAN. Political handicappers and fundraisers overhype them. Expectations create a crypto-like bubble. Then they finally show up and fail to dazzle. The gloss fades fast. You can ask President Beto O'Rourke about this. Okay, give me a break. Yeah, that Beto is just O'Rourke, unfair. <laughs> Beto O'Rourke won one election in a House district in south in south texas and then he had this delusion that he was the savior of his party and somehow conned morons in the media into hyping him so that he has now cost democrats 200 million dollars in a senate race and then in a governor's race each of which he a presidential race Senate race, governor's race, in which he has lost hundreds of millions of dollars and embarrassed himself. Ron DeSantis won a House election, then he won a gubernatorial election, and then he won another gubernatorial election by 20 points. That is his story. His story is electoral success in the third largest state in the union. Comparing him to better work, he may not develop. He may be somebody who is overhyped or whatever. But that is not the he he comes into a race not as a delusional figure of media wish casting, as a liberal from Texas who was going to take your guns away. Man, that's really going to sell to the american people that's and and to voters in texas and all of that like this is a guy who was riding a red wave into florida and on florida and the idea is that's who you need is like somebody who can surf 
a wave on his behalf. He has now shown that he can do it in two elections. In an election that he only won by half a point, and then an election that he won by 20. Like, you can't say that whoever he is, and again, he may not be somebody who can make it nationally, but you can't compare him to a to a to a ludicrous, you know, GQ vanity fair fantasy of you know, uh, a Ralph Lauren model pensively showing you Instagramming his dental examinations. You know, it's bad. That's you know, if we're supposed to take Mark Leibovich seriously as an as an analyst of American politics, he just lost about five thousand points in my book. I mean, I've really enjoyed a lot of his work, but this is just just cringe-inducingly embarrassing. If you like what you hear us talking about on a daily basis, would you do me a favor? Would you please do me a favor? Go to Apple, go to iTunes, and give us a five-star review. It really helps. It makes it possible for people to see us in their feeds, to for Apple to serve it up to them because the numbers are so high. If you want to have more conversations with people who listen to the podcast that you know might surprise you? Uh, this is a way of of your helping to introduce them to us. It would be really great. Please say nice things about my colleagues, and you. It's fine with me if you want to talk about how I talk too much. That's totally fine. We have thousands of reviews in which people say that I talk too much, and you know I don't care as long as the rating is high. So please, Apple review. That would be really nice of you. It's the, beginning of December, this could be a very nice holiday present for us to receive from you. So for Abe Noah and Christina John Potthoritz, keep the candle burning.